Once again, good morning. We're certainly glad that you're here today. As I look at the clock back there in the wall, I see that, uh, as typical, I need to hit the pavement running. Uh, I'm going to keep you about 37 minutes. Try to hold your attention, so I hope you'll stay with me, and I hope that you find it worth it. Um, I hope you got an outline as you came in. If it helps you to fill that out as you go through, you'll find as we go through the PowerPoint, there'll be... uh, Words in white that are framed in red, that'll kind of be your cue. If that helps you out, otherwise just sit back and listen. I sent out an email earlier this week and expressed to you all that after three and a half years, over three and a half years of of journeying through the Gospel of Mark, I finally get to talk about the thing that Mark has been taking us to. It is the defining epicenter of Christianity. And because of that, and I cannot say it in a more uh, passionate way, I have longed for this moment. And yet it is one of the most brutal and harsh moments that we can encounter in the Gospels. Jesus has been warning us about this for the entirety of the Gospel. It is something that when the world looks at it, it actually thinks that we are out of our minds that we would glorify such a thing. As Justin Martyr, I think, stated, uh, uh, he said, they, the world, say that our madness consists in the fact that we would, in essence, take a crucified God and make him the object of our worship. And, it, you know, if you stop to think about it, it is absurd, unless you understand its meaning, that a weeping, bleeding, dying God is the absolute only hope for this world. So we're going to be compelled to either believe or disbelieve that this morning. I cherish this moment. I hope you will, too. Well, let's begin. I read about an actual incident that took place in Denver. A woman went to a jewelry store. She was just looking around, and while she was browsing around, she decided that she wanted to buy a a small uh, cross pendant for her necklace. And as she looked into the display case, she asked the clerk, could you please show me some of the gold crosses? At which the clerk actually said, do you want a plain one or one with a little man on it? I don't think we quite grasp just how marginalized Christianity has become today. Like one of the person noted about today, we can be sure that America is no longer a Christian nation. When the children ask, why are, do church buildings have those plus signs on top? And the parents don't know. But the Apostle Paul would tell us that we can sum up our message in two words. As he explained to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Christ crucified. That's it. That's the embodiment of why we are here this morning. But far too often, though, I think we reflect the church. You had a new sign put on their building. And they had a motto put on it, each word below the other. And it simply read, and correctly, we preach Christ crucified. Unfortunately, they put some ground cover like ivy underneath it and it began to climb up the wall and began to cover up the sign to where it began to read, We Preach Christ. Ultimately, the vines grew up to cover more of the sign to where it finally said, We Preach. And I believe at that point it came closer to the truth where really most churches or many churches are. 
because too often the cross has been conspicuously absent from the substance of our preaching. But I can tell you this, that you cannot deal with the gospel of Mark and avoid the cross. If you really pay close attention, the gospel of Mark is a passion story with a very long introduction. Mark has been taking us to the cross ever since chapter 2, if you paid attention, for those of you who have been in this journey. Because he starts chapter 2, remember, with a series of five conflict narratives, where in essence Jesus, as the great physician, is willing to go against the critics in order to reach the critical. And these five conflict narratives culminate in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, with this statement, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And so Mark uh, uh, shows us very early that Jesus is going to die. It's just a matter of when and how. And as Mark is building toward this moment, it's a little bit surprising that when Mark writes about the actual crucifixion, his whole event, the things that surround it, are mentioned in 21 verses. In fact, the actual crucifixion itself is stated in only four words. Three of you know the Greek. And they crucified him. But if you stop to reflect, none of the Gospels really give us a lot of detail about the crucifixion of Jesus. They are all astonishingly brief. Of course, Mark's original readers lived in Rome, and they didn't need anyone to prompt them about the horrid memories of crucifixion. They had seen more of their fair share of Roman brutality for years. And so they knew how to define this. But what I begin to realize is that the Gospels perhaps are more interested in who Jesus was and why he died than they are in simply filling us in on the physical details. In other words, there at the top of your outline, the cross is better understood through meditation than through clinical examination. And so as we look at the context, which covers almost the entirety of chapter 15, Mark places before us a series of scenes, this is very important, where different people enter on to Mark's stage, so to speak, and they encounter Jesus. And it is through those encounters that Mark reveals to us the defining moments of what the message Christ crucified really means. The first person that walks onto the stage and, and is the person that we know, if you know are familiar with the New Testament history, uh, the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. Now, the Jews brought Jesus, whom they had just accused and charged with blasphemy, to Pilate. Because the, only the Romans had the civil authority to actually execute anybody. Now, when they bring him to Pilate, they're not going to charge Jesus in front of Pilate with blasphemy, because, if you understand, the Romans could care less about what they perceived as simply the, the trivial paraphernalia of Jewish religion. So instead of charging him with blasphemy, when they get in front of Pilate, they're going to charge him with high treason. That is, that Jesus is a threat to Caesar himself. And of course, there is tremendous irony here if you pay attention. They take Jesus to Pilate and charge him with being precisely what he disappointed the Jews in failing to become. 
a political, military insurgent. They charge him for being what they wanted him to be. They wanted him to be a Messiah on their terms. They wanted a Christ who would liberate them from Roman oppression. That's what they wanted. And when Jesus failed to be that, they hauled him before Pilate, and they deceitfully accused him of it. And they knew better. And so, once again, Jesus is really not the one on trial here. Just like Peter and the religious leaders before him, it's now Pilate's turn to stand on trial before Jesus. And in Pilate's encounter with Jesus, there are two phrases that that reveal, interpret this moment. The first one is found in verse 10, where we're told that it was, notice, out of envy that the religious leaders hauled Jesus before Pilate. Now, you know what envy means. It means that you desire something that someone else possesses. And what these religious leaders wanted, you see, was Jesus' influence and his authority over the people. And Pilate knew this. Understand, Pilate was a shrewd politician. He read the Jerusalem Times. He listened to the opinion polls. He knew what the political climate in Jerusalem was, and he knew who these people were, and he knew what motivated them, and he knew that it was not loyalty to Caesar that motivated these Jews. He didn't believe for one second that this itinerant, you know, rabbi is in front of him because the Jews were so concerned about the affairs of Caesar. In fact, he even interrogated Jesus himself if you remember, and there was no way that this peasant from Galilee was after his job. But what Pilate didn't know was the level of the intensity of their envy. And so Pilate thought he could expose their sham by, remember, bringing out Barabbas, who actually was a notorious insurrectionist, and stand him up beside Jesus and say, I'll show you what a real insurrectionist looks like, So now, tell me, who of the two do you think I should punish? And you know what Pilate thought? Pilate thought it was obvious. He expected them to say, well, in that case, we choose for you to punish Barabbas. But they didn't. He underestimated their envy. He forgot just how addicting power is. Now, people who are addicted to power will trade in their reason and their souls to maintain and possess their habits. And here we come to the second phrase of verse fifth, found in verse 15. Here Pilate has a dilemma. Notice. He knows the right thing to do, but he also knows the expedient thing to do. You see, judge and politician as roles often find themselves at odds with each other if you, if, if you look. And here it says simply, he wanted to satisfy the crowd. Judges, you see, are supposed to do what is right. Politicians, in essence, are supposed to do what the people think is right. And so here is this career politician faced, uh, better yet forced, through this kind of political chess game with the the Jewish religious leaders to make a very unpopular decision. He knows that the powers back in Rome did not place him there to simply uh, dispense justice. They put him there to keep the peace. In other words, 
the powers back in Rome were much more concerned about there being an uprising than they were the murder of some Jewish preacher. And so he makes his decision, and he has Jesus severely beaten and hands them over to be crucified. And so we see how Jesus was led to his death, not just by the Jews, but by, if you will, the pagan, non-believing Gentiles. One of history's most famous portraits of the, cru- of the cross scene is by Rembrandt. It's called The Three Crosses. It's, a, it's an etching. And in the, in the center, of course, you see Jesus on his cross to his left and his right, the two thieves. And there at the foot of the cross are the crowds, the women, the scoffers, the, the soldiers, uh, the spectators. And art critics will tell you that there in the midst of this great work, you will see a face that they will tell you is in the likeness of Rembrandt himself. And that what he's trying to convey to us is that he was there, that we were there, that every person was responsible for the cross of Jesus. I can't say they did it. I have to say I did it. After all, what crime was Jesus guilty of? And the answer here is that Jesus wasn't crucified because he was guilty, but because we were. The next scene is too brutal to fathom. Imagine for a moment, think with me, what it was like to be a Roman soldier in Palestine. In fact, if you just think of our own GIs who are in Iraq and Afghanistan and how very alienated they must feel in that rather radically foreign culture. I can tell you this, that Roman soldiers could not have hated their assignment more than they did than where they were placed. Because to be sent to Palestine was the worst assignment to receive. And the reason for that is because they were so radically despised by the Jews. They were not only severely ostracized socially, but on more than one occasion they had to bury their own comrades who had been killed by by radical Jewish patriots. And so you can only imagine the hatred of the Roman soldiers and what they had toward the Jews and how they looked for any excuse to unleash their own vengeance. And so when Pilate turned this Jewish preacher over to the soldiers, he says, he's yours now, you can do with him what you wish. You can only imagine how all of their pent-up bigotry and hatred was vented on Jesus. They took him and they beat him so savagely that he could not barely make his walk to the cross. And then they mocked him as king. In what was in actuality, and ironically, if you pay attention, his coronation. And you would think that would be enough. But there's nothing on earth with as insatiable an appetite as evil. Evil is never full. 
So even after the mockery and the humiliation and the horrific beating and the excruciating experience of having nails driven through his body, the religious leaders are not full. They're not yet content with the enormity of Jesus' suffering. And so we're told that they shoveled their abuse upon Jesus and they actually said in their mockery, it's just dripping with sarcasm. You understand? He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, this King of the Jews, come down off the cross so that we might believe in him. Drip, drip, drip. People do not underestimate how hard it was for Jesus to endure these abuses. If ever there was a moment for a dramatic miracle by Jesus to set the record straight, this is it, isn't it? Do something, Jesus. Set the record straight. And their words must have been hard to endure because they appealed to his very consciousness of power, which was held back only by the restraint of a surrendered will. And as the ironies pour out here, they don't realize the truth of what they just said. As one person puts it, so powerful is the kingdom of God that it reaches down even into the hate-filled minds and venomous lips of its foes, drawing unwitting testimony from those who would look without seeing. On your outlines, Jesus could save others. Jesus could save himself, but he could not do both. It was not a physical impossibility for him to dis, you know, disentangle himself from the cross, but it was a spiritual impossibility. And here Jesus makes the choice to be God's Christ, not man's Christ the magnitude of which is overwhelming and absolutely, completely mystifying. God's love is is so great that he can take the absolute horrifying and appalling measures that the world can dish out, and he still loves them. Somehow God is determined to save these very kinds of people. You know, there are times when You're simply inadequate to explain. This is one of those times. You can take all the courses on preaching. You can take, you can can read every book you get your hands on. You can read and pray for hours. But how do you preach a love like this? You tell me. You tell me what the words are. I imagine that some of you have seen the classic movie Bridge Over the River Kwai. Well, those of us who are older have. You know, it dramatizes an actual true story of the thousands of Allied prisoners who were captured by the Japanese during World War II as they were forced to work in what was called the Burma to Siam Railway as they had to hack their way through the dense Thai forest. 
And if you know anything about this, it's like a scene straight out of Dante's Inferno. Their half-naked men worked under the broiling sun of 120-degree heat where death was commonplace. And if a prisoner happened to appear lagging, why, the Japanese guards would, would simply beat him to death or decapitate him right in front of all the others. Many more just simply dropped dead from exhaustion and malnutrition and disease. And it was under these severe conditions that 80,000 people died. By the way, that's 393 deaths for every one mile of track that they laid. How would you like that job? It was also under these conditions that the Allied prisoners themselves descended into barbarism. It was survival of the fittest. It was every man for himself. In the food line, they fought over what few scraps of food they can get their hands on. Uh, The officers refused to share any of their special rations. The theft was common in the barracks. In short, they lived like animals. And hate emerged as the strategy for staying alive. But then something happened that changed everything. One day, the Japanese guards were making very careful count of the tools at the end of one day's work, and the guard shouted, Shovel's missing! And he walked up and down the ranks, and he, and he demanded to know who stole the shovel. And when no one confessed, he screamed, All die! All die! And he began to level his rifle at the first person to begin the massacre. At which time one man, an enlisted man, stepped forward, stood at attention, and it says, It is me. The guard fell on him in such a fury and in his rage beat him to death. Tragically, that night, when they once again did a tool inventory, they discovered that a mistake had been made. The shovel was not missing after all. And word of this spread among the prisoners. There was someone among them who was actually willing to die. And this changed everything. As attitudes in the camp began to shift, they began to treat the dying with respect and organized proper funerals, which they were not doing before. Prisoners were looking after each other. Now theft grew increasingly rare. Uh, Men even began to sell their watches and their contraband to the Japanese officers to get medicine so that they can tend to those of their comrades who were not doing well, where before they just let them die. They even built a little church, and each evening they gathered for worship, and they prayed for each other. In short... These men began to love each other. How do you preach a love like this? On your outlines, nails did not keep Jesus on the cross. Love did. They told Jesus, you know, you just get down off that cross and and we'll believe in you. But I'm telling you, I believe in him because he didn't get off. Because he didn't. And what happened next must have been eerie. 
If we're told some sort of meteorological event occurred where darkness covered the scene, and of course darkness is a symbol for something. It's a symbol of of sin and rebellion and judgment. And at a moment, you see, a voice pierces out of the darkness when everyone had abandoned Jesus, and it was only God who could deliver him. You with me? A sound that must have made the hairs on the back of all of those spectators' heads rise. As this man who had not raised his voice suddenly pulls himself up and cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Mark could only grasp the intensity of this in words by putting it in its native language of Aramaic. And I'll tell you, there are a lot of attempts to explain away the reality of Jesus' forsakenness. But they do this only to minimize the cup that Jesus said he would have to drink. That's why I do not offer you a flannel board this morning or a story from BBS, but the truth. I don't know how to explain it, but somehow in this dark moment, God, who is one, somehow split. The Trinity somehow dismantled. And you and I will never understand that. Why? Because there was someone who had no sin, who had my sin. And then you expand the scene and listen to the crosses next to Jesus. That's where Mark takes us. And there on the left of Jesus, it held a man who was angry at God, he was angry at people, and he was filled by hatred and bitterness and skepticism. And that day, on that cross, that thief had sin in him, and he died with sin on him, and he had to stand before God condemned. But on the right of Jesus, there was another cross, and on that cross was a man who, by the way, was just as guilty as the man on the left. But this man looked to Jesus, and he cast himself toward Jesus in a desperate search for grace. And that man died with sin in him, but he would stand before God with no sin on him. Why? Because in the middle was another cross, and this cross is radically unique. Because on that cross was a man who had no sin in him, but somehow he had all of our sins on him. All of them. And every person has a choice whether or not he or she will be like the man on the left, or on the right. The Living Bible puts it this way, for God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins, 
Then, in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. I must face the realities, even the repulsiveness of this moment, because only as I face the realities of this moment can I come to understand how true it is that grace did not come cheap. But I will tell you this. There was another event. And Mark tells us about this in verse 38, that another strange thing happened. There in the temple, it says, this 80-foot-high curtain was torn from top, it says, to the bottom. And of course, this, this curtain covered the entranceway into the Holy of Holies, where God himself was said to dwell. And the Hebrew writer writes about this. Of course, you have here another point of, of visual theology. And the Hebrew writer says there's meaning behind this. And what it's telling us is that, that when this curtain was rent, that now you and I can come into the very presence of Jesus through the horrendous sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. And I cannot help but think what the people in the temple thought that day. I do know this, that later on in Acts chapter 6, it says that even many among the priests became believers in Jesus. And I can't help but think that it was this strange event that began their pilgrimage. Someone would ask the question, is it really true that, the, that the, this the curtain ripped from top to bottom? And some honest priest said, yes. And all I can say is that God had something to do with it. But those in the temple were not the first to be touched by the cross. Ironically, unexpectedly. No, the first was found in the last verse of our text, verse 39. It was a Roman centurion who stood in front of Jesus and he heard the cry and he saw how he, he died. And he said he was just compelled to speak the truth. Ironically, when no Jew could see it. A Gentile spontaneously identifies the transcendent deity of Jesus. And here, in case you're wondering, is the climax of the Gospel of Mark. Remember back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The beginning of the Gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And all the way through the Gospel, not one person quite gets it until you get to the cross. And there, for, for the first time, someone finally gets it, and the words actually pass through the lips of a human being for the first time. Surely, this was the Son of God. And if you're paying attention, this Roman soldier is to personify, to exemplify the impact that this gospel is supposed to have on you and me. And where is the impact felt the most? It is at the cross. If you don't go to the cross... Yes, framed with all of its brutality, you will not understand Jesus. 
On your outlines, if you don't go to the cross, you will see, we will see Jesus as nothing more than a miracle worker obligated to heal our lives and supply our needs with no personal obligation to die with him. Do you see? You see, they thought that when they killed Jesus, they stopped his message and they didn't realize that they were simply endorsing it. And it's as if Mark is trying to say to us, I have written all that I have written to get you to this one point, because if this doesn't move you, nothing's going to move you. Nothing. Of course, we come to the cross so that Jesus can bear our sins. Wash us by his blood. But while Jesus bears our sins, he also invites, yea, commands, that we bear our own crosses. And so I know that my time is up, but give me just a few brief minutes to finish. Number one on your outlines, we must resolve the identity of Jesus. In short, the cross means nothing, people, until you figure out who's on it. Until we're absolutely convicted about who Jesus is, we will be handicapped in our ability to follow him. Jesus' identity matters most of all. Or it matters not at all. But it doesn't just matter a little bit, does it? Number two, we must resolve to identify with Jesus. We're called to be like Simon of Cyrene who actually carried the cross for Jesus. That is, we're called to bear the very shame and guilt of indignity and scandal that the cross brings to us. Thomas A. Kempis, in his classic work, The Imitation of Christ, says, Jesus hath now many lovers of his heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. Let me, let me try to put it to you uh, this way. It is right to come to Jesus to solve our problems and our pains. He genuinely encourages us to come to him with the things that bother our life. And he genuinely encourages this. Nothing is too trivial for God. If it matters to you, it matters to him. It does. And so, yes, Jesus is in the most intimate way our friend. And so God does care patiently and lovingly with our marriage, about our marriages, about our loneliness, about our depression, about our self-esteem, and the worries that plague us. But Jesus also made it clear that he didn't come here simply to meet our needs. Are you listening? He came to die for our sins. And if we're not careful, we're going to end up redefining our message. 
we're going to begin to think that all we really need to do today is to come to Jesus for therapy. You know, just get a quick repair of the damage and put us back on track again. Yes, we should be concerned about saving marriages, but we should be more concerned about saving souls. Esteem does matter, but not more than salvation. Fighting poverty and injustice is a clear call of God, and the world's not going to listen to us if we don't act that way. But let's not think that we have performed our task until we have also addressed the ultimate problem of sin with the ultimate answer of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so there at the bottom of your outlines, listen to it, please. I can go to heaven while struggling with my pains and my problems, having and not having. But I cannot go to heaven without forgiveness. And so I offer you this invitation. If we can help you in some public way in front of this family, I encourage you to come forward. Or remember, you can go back and tap one of our shepherds on the shoulder, talk to them privately, and pray together. Please, as we stand and as we sing.